morning, would you please stand and worship with us in song because we are celebrating that we worship and serve a risen Sacrifice to conquer every sting of death. Sing, sing hallelujah. For joy awakes as dawning light. With Christ's disciples lift their eyes. Alive he stands, their friend and king. Christ, Christ he is risen. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. Where doubt and darkness once had been, they saw him and their hearts believed. But blessed are those who have not seen yet. Sing hallelujah. Once bound by fear, now bold in faith, they preach the truth and power of grace. And pouring out their lives, they gain life, life everlasting. Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. The power that raised him from the grave now works in us to powerfully save. He frees our hearts to live his grace. Go tell of his goodness. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. Hallelujah! Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah! Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It is so good to see each and every one of you here this morning. We glad we are glad you have joined us for worship together. Um, we would ask you at this time to pull out your worship folder if you grabbed one on the way in. Inside there, you'll find all sorts of information about what's going on in the church. You also find the checking card, and if you would help us out by taking a quick moment to fill that out and let us know that you're here. You can also share with us any prayer requests you have or praises. We would love to come alongside and pray with you and rejoice with you. At the end of the service, you can take that card and you can drop it in the white tables at either entrance. There's a little slot in the side. And, at, and also, we'd just like to extend a special welcome if you're visiting with us. We are so glad that you chose to come and visit us. Um, if you have any questions, at the end of the service, just outside these double doors, we have a welcome desk. And I would encourage you to stop by there and visit. And they would be able to answer your questions that you have. And also, they would just love to meet you. And we have a gift we would like to give you. So that, I would encourage you to stop by there after the service. And um, 
If you don't like filling out these checking cards by paper, you can certainly download the app on, on your phone and do it on your phone really quickly and easily. Well, we're excited to remind you that today we're going to vote to affirm the calling of Josh Gerber to serve at Newcastle as the Associate Pastor of Care and Discipleship. So after 10 months of searching about 30 candidates and lots of prayer from you guys and the leadership, the elders decided to offer Josh the position contingent upon congregational vote. So in order to help the elders discern the fitness and calling of a pastor, the candidating process is it's long and it's thorough. And Josh entered that process back in June. Now you all have had a chance to hear Josh preach You've listened to him during the Q&A, and you've had a chance to interact with him and his family. You looked at some of his documents, like his resume and his ministry philosophy. Um, And you've had a chance to share your feedback with the elders, and they've really appreciated that. But you are about to vote for a person you don't fully know. You don't have all the information. So what does your vote mean? Well, your vote does two things. It's an opportunity for you to affirm the elder's decision to call Josh to be our next pastor of care and discipleship. And the second thing your vote does is it's your way of expressing your excitement to Josh himself about his calling to serve here, which should be a tremendous encouragement to him. So there are two ways to vote this morning. You can vote by paper ballot, which is in your worship folder. You can fill that out, and at the end of the service, there are special boxes on those white tables that'll be labeled that it's for the vote and you can drop it in there. You can also do it over your phone. There's instructions on the screen. I think there might be instructions inside your worship folder too. So there's a number you can text and it's just going to answer, ask you two questions. Are you a member? And um, do you vote for Josh Gerber? And so it's going to be worded some way like that. Um, So it's a super simple way to do that. We'd encourage you to do that sometime this morning before the end of this second service. Um, But we're super excited about that, and we hope you are as well. But before we continue on in our singing, would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Jesus, you are glorious. You are majestic. You are holy, but yet you are kind and gentle. And you came to earth to dwell among sinners. You are the one who calls to broken Um, dirty, filthy sinners to say, come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You came to be among those who were sick spiritually and knew that they needed help. You drew near to those. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to draw near to you this morning, that you would help us no matter what we've gone through this week or are going through, no matter what looms ahead of us in life, that we would dwell right now in this moment, focus on you, and be in awe of who you are. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks an all-important question, but who do you say that I am? He asked that to his disciples because all the people who had been hearing and seeing Jesus do ministry had ideas of who they thought he was, a prophet, a good man, uh, Elijah, Jeremiah. But he asked the disciples, not because he didn't know, but because he wanted to hear what they would say. 
And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was his confession and he was right. Jesus is the Messiah, that's what Christ is, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the son of God, the king of Israel, a healer, a comforter, one who is humbled, taking on flesh and being obedient to the point of death on a cross. He is the Holy One of God, the one who is seated on the throne in Isaiah 6 when the angels cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy. He is glorious and He is worthy of all of our praise. So would you please stand as we sing Glorious Christ. Fears. And though we cannot see you, we 
coming back again And all will be made right When you appear And all will be made right When you appear You are the glorious Christ The greatest of all delights Your power is unequaled Your love beyond all heights No greater sacrifice Than when you lay down your life We join the song of angels Who praise you day and night Glorious Christ Our sins, they are many, 
sins they are many, His mercy is more. Amen. I'm thankful we have another day here where we can all worship here together. So how many here are small group leaders? Good. So if you are, would you please stand for me? So every year we want to recognize and pray for our small group uh, leaders, the important work that you're doing. Uh, So first off, I want to say thank you. So thank you for being so faithful. Uh, Thank you for humbly serving a small group of believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and encouraging them. Thank you uh, for pointing to the hope in the next life when, you're, when your brothers and sisters are being harried and, and worn and, uh, and tempted. And uh, thank you for pointing them to the cross and for confessing your sins to them. So, and also, secondly, I'd like to charge you uh, to continue in what First Thessalonians chapter 1 says, but to continue your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. And before I pray um, for our small group leaders, um, would everyone in the church here go ahead and stand up in unity here together um, as we commission our small group leaders here for another year of faithful serving for the glory of God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our small group leaders and their ministry to us in your church. I ask you to teach them the ways of your statute and then they will keep it to the end. Give them understanding that they may keep your law and observe it with their whole heart. Lead them in the path of your commandments for they delight in it. Incline their ear to your testimonies and not to selfish gain turn their eyes from looking at worthless things to idols to covetousness and and give them life in your ways confirm them with your promises that they may fear you turn away the reproach for your rules are good behold they long for your precepts give righteousness to them lord Also, Lord, I ask for the whole church, consecrate all of us to you. If there is any sin here, please let them confess it. You are holy, holy, holy. And we're so thankful that you have revealed your holiness to us in your word. We want to glorify you and not ourselves. We want your name to be glorified and proclaimed over the whole earth. Let us be a light. Let us be salt to our communities and those of the whole world. Let those, Lord, let those who are suffering now praise you. Let those that are hurting praise you and rejoice. Let those who are weak know that you will make them strong. Please, Lord, lead us beside still waters. Let us drink deeply from your word. Remember those who are crying out to do, crying out to you and hear their prayers. Lord, also please remember Amanda King as she is tired and worn, especially from a hard um, month of serving, and encourage her and heal her, Lord. 
And remember Crosspoint Community Church. Let them be a light, Lord. Let them be salt to their community. Lead us here this week. Lead us here this morning here as we hear your word, that your word will cut deeply through our idols and our covetousness, and that we will glorify you and worship here together in unity, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thomas Chalmers, stay standing if you would. Thomas Chalmers wrote a sermon, and uh, it was titled, The Expulsory Power of a Superior Affection or Love. And as a reminder, the sermon was that in order to overcome the idols of the heart, you have to love something else more. And this song reminds us that Christ is that expulsory power. Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with Him. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am His forevermore. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel, where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven, and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes His work in me. a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter, harm and hatred for His name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And He has said He will deliver safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure, Christ is mine forevermore. Now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. 
Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. And my heart keeps to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, Jesus changes everything, doesn't he? What a joy to worship him today. I pray your soul is encouraged as we sing of his gospel love for sinners like us. Let's continue our worship now by opening your copy of God's word to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, just raise your hand. We would love to give a copy of God's word to you today to take home as our gift to you. As we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, today we'll be looking at verses 17 to 19. Last Sunday, Pastor Scott taught how every member is absolutely essential to the building up of the body of Christ. He did that from verses 11 to 16 of chapter 4. Remember, chapters 4, 5, and 6 call us to walk or live in a manner that is consistent with the calling, the gospel calling that is revealed to us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So the first 16 verses of chapter 4 calls Christians to walk in unity. And then the second part of chapter 4, which we're going to start today, call Christians to walk in holiness. So today, our focus is going to be mostly on the sinful character and conduct of this world that Christians are called to put off. But I'm going to read all the way through verse 24 today, which appropriately completes Paul's contrast and provides the gospel solution for hardened hearts of sin. So if you're able, one more time, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the public reading of God's word. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, all the way down through verse 24. These are the words of God, Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them 
due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, it's corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. It's so good to worship together with you today. Let's pray that God would help us as we come to the preaching of his word. Let's, let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would give us today the humility of Naaman. That you'd help us to put aside our pride and receive the saving, rescuing, healing grace that is given freely to the humble heart. I pray, Father, that you remove all distractions from us today and allow our hearts and our minds to be renewed, to be washed, to be cleansed by the power of your word through the ministry of your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would work the miracle as we worship you together so that your church would become more and more like Jesus in how we think, that the mind of Christ would be embraced by us and that we would turn from sin. We need your help. So please open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I'm inviting you into the biblical laboratory of Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 as we seek to peel back the layers of human morality and expose the biblical anatomy of unbelief. So put on your rubber gloves Prepare your nostrils for that scent of theological formaldehyde. And we are going to take this hour to dissect the inner desires and the outer behaviors of worldly unbelief, of the ungodly walk. Now, I, I recognize my approach today begs some explanation. You, why would we take a whole sermon to focus on the problem of sin when the scriptures go on to give us so much gospel hope in the following verses. Wouldn't it be better to focus more on the positive put-ons than the negative put-offs? After all, today's my 45th birthday. Can't I find a more, yeah, can't we find a more happy topic to talk about on September 11th than what's wrong with this world? Well, yes, now listen. The scriptures do put more emphasis on the put-ons than the put-offs. Christians today need to be known more about what we're for than what we're against. But 
the profound biblical insight of verses 17 to 19 deserve our careful attention. After all, we all live in the midst of an unbelieving world. Don't you ever find yourself asking, what is wrong with this world? Why are people doing what they're doing? Why is our world so messed up? And how you answer those questions is extremely important. After all, how you define the problem will determine how you define the solution. How you understand the real problems of our world today will ultimately determine where you look to find the solutions for those problems. Many today believe that the root problem of humanity is economic or environmental or educational. So in other words, if we can just get people the right resources in the right environment, then they'll thrive. Others today believe, no, 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 that the, the root problem of humanity is actually uh, hormonal. It's biological. So our solution lies in some kind of medicine or some kind of pharmaceutical balance to our biochemistry Frankly, there is an endless supply of theories in psychology today about what's truly wrong with this world. But the God who created every person and who created everything in this world is not silent. And today our Bibles are open to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, which clearly teach that humanity's root problem is the pursuit of happiness by way of rejecting God. Now, don't be turned off by this offensive odor of theological formaldehyde here. Listen carefully. The root problem of all sinners is that they want to be happy apart from God. I mean, the pursuit of happiness, it's, it sounds so innocent, right? But whenever our desires for personal happiness are combined with a willful rejection of God. Humanity's most fundamental purpose is sabotaged. This is the root problem of all unbelief, seeking to find happiness through rejection of God. So look at verse 17 now. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, meaning I am insisting with the intensity of Jesus' own authority, you Christians must no longer walk like the Gentiles do. You see, Christianity is not just an intellectual philosophy for you to add to your library of mental ideals. Christianity is a practical way of life. Paul says, I know you Ephesians, you, you, you Ephesian Christians, you're, you're living in Ephesus. I know that in Ephesus there's raging wickedness, sexual perversion twisted together in the worship of the goddess Diana and other false gods. And, and I know that you Christians in Ephesus are ethically Gentiles. So I'm not calling you to change your racial loyalties, but I am calling you to change your moral 
loyalties. Now that you are in Christ, you should no longer walk or live like the unbelievers you used to be. The worthy walk, the the way of living that's most suitable, most fitting with the gospel realities of chapters 1 to 3 is a lifestyle of holiness that's radically different from the lifestyle of unbelievers. Now notice what Paul does here. Starting in verse 17. Paul begins to peel off one layer after another layer of sin's consequences on the human mind. He's digging at the root of all sinful living. He's seeking to ultimately reveal the most basic and fundamental problem of the unworthy walk. Now, the logical sequence of Paul's argument isn't always clear in our English translations. So it will help you if you insert the word because. Between each of the various phrases, if no other connecting word is supplied. And in this way, you won't miss Paul's logic. So let's start in verse 17, see if we can follow this through. In verse 17, he states that unbelievers live in the futility of their minds because they are darkened in their understanding. And their understanding is darkened because they are alienated from the life of God. And they are alienated because of the ignorance that is in them. And unbelievers are spiritually ignorant due to their hardness of heart. So just pause and notice. First, the root problem of humanity is not ignorance or the lack of education. The root problem of humanity at the very bottom is hardness of heart. That's the deepest part of sin's root in people, hard hearts. Or verse 19 says, they have become callous. That's another way of describing the spiritual hardness of the unbeliever. And then in verse 19, Paul switches direction to describe how this inner root of hard-heartedness expresses itself outwardly in external behavior. All these inner layers of, from futility to hardness now produce an external conduct of sensuality. And that sensuality leads to practicing every kind of impurity, which is all done out of greed or covetousness. So here's how we're going to approach these verses today. We're going to walk through this paragraph in reverse, actually using its logical sequence. So we're going to start at the very, very bottom of the root cause of all sin and then carefully examine each layer until we fully understand what the world does and why it does it that way. Then after we've carefully considered every part of the biblical anatomy of unbelief, we'll close today's sermon with one practical application for how Christians should respond to this biblical description of humanity's root problem. So are you ready? Are you ready? A few of you are. Okay. So let's start at the bottom. Let's start at the deepest root cause for all worldliness and sin which we find listed at the end of verse 18 and at the beginning of verse 19. This is the hard or calloused 
heart. The world's most fundamental problem is a spiritual hardness of heart that is determined to remain in sin and is desensitized to sin's death. Determined and desensitized. Ever since Adam's fall in the garden, every person is sinfully determined and sinfully desensitized, hardened and calloused in heart. And that heart is the, is the biblical word for our true self, the, the entire inner person. So make no mistake, the, this is the deepest and most fundamental problem of every person who lives apart from God's grace. We've cut right to the core of human motivation by starting here. The ultimate reason sinners sin is because they are determined to sin. And loved ones, if you have ever tried to convince a non-Christian to stop sinning, you understand this reality. Sinners, by their nature, refuse to be convinced to turn away from their sin. Apart from God's help, the human heart is rock hard. Literally, the word here is petrified, as in petrified wood. The controlling center of every person is rebellious, stubborn, completely obstinate, and fatally close-minded to God in all of his ways. This word calloused, that gives the idea that sin is, has ultimately desensitized a person so that they lose all spiritual feeling. The conscience now becomes seared. The sinner becomes morally uncaring, spiritually paralyzed to recognize that their ruling desires are voluntarily leading them down the path of death. The hard-hearted sinner still makes his own responsible choices. In fact, the hard-hearted, calloused person is ruled by a cauldron of burning self-desires that are within him. But he's completely blinded to the lust of his deceit and Satan's lies. So at his core, at the very core of a sinful heart, a sinner is refusing to acknowledge God, refusing to honor God. And what does that hard, calloused heart lead to? Well, if you follow Paul's logic in verse 18, hardness of heart leads to spiritual ignorance. Now, don't be confused by this. This ignorance is not innocent. This, innocent, this ignorance is sinful. Since this is the heart's deliberate refusal to know God. Notice verse 18 says, this is the ignorance that is within them, meaning it's a responsible consequence of their hardened heart. It's not some result of some educational failure outside of them. This describes how every unbeliever exercises a flagrant refusal to know God and his will, a willful and responsible rejection of God's truth. Romans 1 verse 18 describes how all sinners are without excuse since all sinners suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You say, what does that mean? Have you ever tried to hold a big, large beach ball under the water in a pool? 
and then try to convince your friends, there's no beach ball in this pool. If you ever try to do that, you understand what it means to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is a picture of what spiritual ignorance looks like. Sinners purposely try to hide and deny the very knowledge of God and his will, all due to their hard-hearted determination to worship themselves rather than their true creator. Spiritual ignorance. Now, lay down your dissecting tools for a moment. I want you to think about something with me. Once you reject the knowledge of God and his truth. That means there's no longer any absolute truth for you or anybody else. Every person who's spiritually ignorant, rejecting God and rejecting his truth, now gets to determine their own truth. And so what is true for me may not be true for you, and what is true for you may not be true for me. And do you see then how our world is now floating on this sea of moral relativism and spiritual ignorance? This world today believes that the deliberate ignorance of God and his transcendent truth is woke. It's progressive. But Romans 1.27 clearly says that while they claim to be wise, they really became fools. Also, I want you to think about this. Do you remember when Jesus was praying in John chapter 17 how he described eternal life? In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says this, this is eternal life that they may know me. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowing God is actually what brings true life to the soul. Therefore, if you keep tracing Paul's logic through this text, it should not then be surprising to learn that a deliberate refusal to know God actually leads to alienation from God. Now, alienation does not mean that we turn into little green monsters that are called aliens. It's just a big word that means that we're opposed to God and we're excluded. We're separated. We're excluded from God's salvation. So the flow of Paul's argument makes it clear. The reason sinners are, dis- are disconnected from eternal life and without hope and without God in the world is because their willful spiritual ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. This word alienated implies hostility. Like Colossians 1.21 says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So all sinners are excluded or separated from eternal life. Just as we learned from Ephesians chapter 2, every sinner is spiritually dead. Every sinner is an eternal enemy of God who is opposed to God and is outside of God's saving promises. These are quite the guts of unbelief that we're dissecting together, isn't it? A person Hardened determination to remain in sin, regardless of what it costs, leads to his deliberate refusal to know God, which makes him fundamentally opposed to God and forever excluded from eternal life and God's salvation. 
And this fixed state of separation from God then leads to, what does the text say? A darkened understanding where the spiritually dead soul is unable to perceive Jesus' beauty. Paul says this at the beginning of verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. Again, there's so many parallels between Ephesians 4 and Romans chapter 1, but in Romans chapter 1 verse 21, Paul teaches that their foolish hearts were darkened because they did not honor God or give thanks to him. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes that the natural person, referring to the, the unbeliever, the unbeliever does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He can, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, listen carefully. The result of being alienated from God is a moral darkness, a corruption of your moral reasoning so that the sinner is unable to perceive that Jesus is beautiful and that God is good. Oh, sinners can be really smart. Sinners can have high IQs. Sinners can have great intellects. But regardless of their IQs, sinners will never be able to understand gospel realities. Sinners will always love spiritual darkness and hate the light of Jesus. When sinners read the gospel of Jesus, it will seem to them like a foolish wives' tale. And all of these are the consequences of sin on the human soul that leads then to a futile mind. Verse 17 teaches that this is the stinking thinking that leads to the losing living of sinners. Futile just means pointless. It means failing. It means useless. So a futile mind is useless thinking that pursues personal happiness and satisfaction in all the wrong places. It's futile, meaning it just doesn't work. My mind doesn't accomplish or achieve what it's supposed to accomplish or achieve. Now, this is fascinating. Some of you aren't used to all this formaldehyde, so come up for air for a moment. Let me ask you a couple questions. Why did God create you? God created you for his glory, right? All people were created in the image of God to reflect God's likeness in this world and increase the fame of his name among all people. You were created, every person was created for God's glory. Okay, good, we got that. Now, second question. Why did God give you a mind? Well, the human mind is that part of us that experiences and desires satisfaction and happiness. God created every person with a mind so that we could have a joyful ability to know him and experience his glory forever. God created you with a mind so that you could love him with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. 
The human mind is created by God to know and delight in the supremacy of Christ. In fact, our minds were created to be particularly responsive to the glory of God and his, the knowledge of his glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So don't miss this. God created you with a mind so that you could forever be happy in Jesus. But notice now from our text, sin so corrupts the human mind that our minds no longer work. Because of our spiritual darkness that that comes from our spiritual alienation, that comes from our spiritual ignorance, that comes from our spiritual hardness, the unbelieving mind now only seeks satisfaction outside of Jesus. Sin literally puts us out of our minds. Sin distorts a person's thinking and recenters all of its desires, all of its affections, all of its values on self-serving interests rather than on the glory of Christ. And so according to Romans chapter 8, the human mind that is under sin's control is now hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law or please God. The mind of unbelief is futile. It no longer works according to God's design. It's now consumed by pure selfishness, seeking satisfaction in the ever-diminishing returns of sin. Which then takes us back to verse 19 of Ephesians 4, right? Because now that we've dissected the internal character of unbelief, verse 19 reveals the external conduct of unbelief. According to verse 19, The warped and futile mind of sin now seeks its pleasure where? In sensuality rather than the supremacy of Christ. Sensuality, it has too many syllables. Can't even say it. So what does it mean? Well, it's a broad word that means simply unrestrained cravings for self-indulgence. When we hear the word sensuality, we usually think sexual excesses, but it's not limited. It includes sexual desires, but it's not limited to just sexual desires. Sensuality is simply describing all that the human mind desires apart from God. It is simply human desire minus God. Or in the words of our main point today, sensuality is the pursuit of happiness by way of rejecting God. Sensuality throws off all moral restraint and gives oneself over to the self-centered burning passions of a warped mind. Now, did you notice how verse 19 says that the character of unbelief gives itself up to sensuality? That's profound. That's profound. Because one of the ways that God judges sinners is by simply giving sinners over to what sinners want. Listen carefully. In Romans chapter 1, God gives sinners up to the lust of impurity, to the lust of dishonorable passions, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, sin itself is one of God's punishments for unbelief. The sin, the very sin itself, is one of the punishments Certainly, we see this kind of suicidal self-indulgence all over our unbelieving world today, right? If it feels good, do it. Do whatever makes you happy. 
I mean, the sinful world has no regard for public decency or what God thinks, but only lives to gratify their ever-increasing lust for happiness by pursuing those ever-diminishing results of sin. And according to the end of verse 19, this pursuit of sensuality always leads to the practice of every kind of impurity, meaning all kinds of moral uncleanness and sexual sin. This word is sexual, it's sexually charged in its way, and unfortunately time does not permit me today to teach on God's good design for human sexuality as opposed to how the world thinks about sex. But I've included a two-page appendix in today's sermon manuscript that you can pick up today in the back of the room, in the front of the room, or it'll be online this week with the sermon for your further study about God's good design for sexuality. We need to renew our minds of God's design for sexuality in the midst of this sex-crazed world. But for now, just doesn't verse 19 help us understand why the world acts the way it does? Why sex sells? Why pornography and homosexuality and all kinds of sexual perversion are raging through this world today like a terminal cancer? The word for practice in verse 19 is a strong word. It means that the the behavior of unbelief is often so preoccupied with moral and sexual perversion, it's as as if impurity is now our full-time job. And according to verse 19, all of these sensual and impure behaviors are out of greed or covetousness. After all, the human mind that is warped by sin is deceived. It's deceived into believing that happiness will finally come if I just have a little bit more. If I could just have a little bit more of what someone else has, then I'd finally be happy. But look down at verse 22. Christian, put off your old self, referring to this Gentile way of unbelief and sin. Put off your old self, which, re- which belongs to your former manner of life and is what? Corrupt through deceitful desires. Did you catch the end of verse 22? The lifestyle of the unbeliever is corrupted. It's ruined by the lust of deceit, by lying desires of greed and covetousness, which are actually just a worship disorder of idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 makes this explicit when Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. That's the, that's the word that's translated greed in our text, which is idolatry. So sensuality and moral impurity actually reflect greed or covetousness, the false worship of covetousness. For whenever I allow my mind to be controlled by my own selfish desires and I put whatever I want at the center of my life as my God little G whom I expect to satisfy me, then I'm worshiping my desires more than I'm worshiping God. Nothing matters more to me than that I get what I want, when I want it, how I want it, in the manner that I want it. My ruthless appetite for more must be satisfied to make me happy. At least that's the lie that sin uses to continually deceive the mind that is so hardened by sin. You see, church, 
covetousness or idolatry is what all desires lead to when they are disconnected from God. Desires minus God equals idolatry. This is the biblical anatomy of unbelief. Humanity's root problem is the pursuit of happiness by way of rejecting God. The entire unbelieving world is driven by idolatrous greed, making a living out of impurity and sensuality that reflects the selfish cravings of a non-working mind whose moral understanding has been darkened because of being alienated from the life of God because of the spiritual ignorance that is in them that's due to the hardened and calloused hearts. That is what's wrong with this world from God's perspective. No wonder then that verse 17 is so strong when Paul insists that Christians are not to keep living like unbelievers. The world's character, the world's conduct is obviously not suitable for those who are in Christ. Now next Sunday, we're going to focus on the positive call to holiness that's found in verses 20 to 24. But for today, I just want to offer one application for how Christians should respond in light of what we learn about the anatomy of sin, what we've learned about the full extent of sin's corruption in the human condition. Now that we understand the hard-hearted, deceptive slavery that sin has on every unbeliever, I believe, church, we must pray. You must pray for God's Spirit to renew your mind. And you must pray for God's Spirit to renew the minds of your loved ones. After all, the voluntary slavery of hard-heartedness is not something that we have the ability to change. Adam's sin has cast the entire human race into the inevitable death of sin's deceptive suicide. Oh yes, all who repent and believe in Jesus will be saved, but sin's effect on the human mind is such that no one will seek for God. No one will desire God. No sinner will ever perceive Jesus as beautiful. All sinners are spiritually dead, spiritually blind, and spiritually unable to understand the very cross of Christ that is able to set them free from sin slavery. Stony hearts will never change unless God's people pray and God's Spirit works a miracle and renews the sinful mind. So church, I want to just share a couple quick verses to give you hope. And I pray that your soul will soar with praise to our God of salvation as you hear these verses. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God gives some salvation promises. We call it the new covenant. When God promises, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all of your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you, oh, circle this if you write in your Bible, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. Then listen, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit 
within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Oh, celebrate the miracle of God's salvation of sinners, church. Christianity is not just adding some little bit of religion into my life. Christianity is not about reformation. Christianity is about resurrection. It's about a new life, a new heart, a new mind, the mind of Christ that now seeks its happiness and its satisfaction in knowing God and walking in his ways. Again, listen to Titus chapter 3. Verses three to five, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we've learned from Ephesians 4? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration. How did he save us? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Oh, dear friend, we must rely on the miraculous renewal of God's Spirit if we are to ever truly know God. So pray for God's spirit to renew the spirit of your mind, even as verse 23 says in Ephesians 4 that we'll talk about next week. We all need the miracle of spiritual renewal in our minds in order to be delivered from sin's hard-hearted and deceptive entrapment. So pray for yourself and then ask yourself this, what's one person I could pray for this week? What's one unbeliever that I know and love, that I could fervently pray for this week, write down their initials right now, make a commitment to say, Lord, I want to pray for your spiritual renewal of this person this week. Pray that God would open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan into God, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith alone in the death and resurrection of Christ. Pray, church, that our humble dependence upon the renewal of God's Spirit might work a miracle and grant us life. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that you are a God of salvation, that you are a God of renewal, of giving a brand new heart, of taking a stony heart and giving a soft, teachable heart, of taking a, a hardened mind and giving us the mind of Christ. Oh, there is no way we could ever fully appreciate the wonder and the glory of this salvation that you've granted to us. So, Father, please, please increase our awe. We pray right now for our own hearts that you would renew us in the spirit of your mind, that you would take your word and that you, you would wash our mind with your word, that your spirit would renew our thinking, that we would not be so easily entangled again in these deceptive lusts of our former life in sin. And Father, right now, each of us pray for this person that you brought to our minds today. You know who each of these people are. God, would you please be merciful?
not because of any works that they've done to deserve it, but would you just please turn the lights on in their minds? Help their mind to work again the way that you've created it to work, that they would find satisfaction and happiness in the beauty and glory of Christ. Please deliver our loved ones from the hardness of sin and make for yourself a people as you build your church, we pray. Amen. We ourselves were once darkened, alienated, hard-hearted. But what makes us different now? It's not that we decided one morning to just be better. That's, that's what the world would teach. But the only thing, the only reason, the only claim we have to boast is Christ. We were running our hell-bound race, but Christ intervened and he saved us. Would you please stand as we testify to that truth? I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love display, you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. So all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only
Have Jesus and does Jesus have you? If so, you have everything you need. <laughs> really, I know this world is hard. Every day is full of suffering. We're not home yet, but our life is in Christ. The old life is dead. Christ is our life. Celebrate Him. Love Him. Wash your mind regularly with His Word, the gospel promises. Wash your mind with songs like that, with lyrics that cause you to think deeply about God and His grace and His miraculous power to save. Renew your minds with the good news that Jesus died in your place and rose again so that whoever believes in him will be delivered from death's slavery. Church, what a joy. So thankful for Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now of sin, repent of it. Turn from it. If the Holy Spirit's calling you to Confess your faith in Christ today. Tell someone. If you need somebody, come and talk to me. Tell someone today what God's Spirit is doing in your soul for the sake of your eternal joy. Now, today we have a very, very special, and I know we've had a lot of special Sundays lately. Today's very special at 9.30. Oh, please, this is not an optional thing. Like, this isn't something like, oh, well, somebody's going to do this. I can, I can go home and, and eat early. No, this is worth an hour delay to your food. We, as the church of Jesus here at Newcastle Bible Church, we get to ordain a new elder and install Chris Metalman as one of our shepherds. This is a very rare privilege for a church to be able to recognize and install a brand new shepherd in the body and recognize what God's Spirit's doing among us. We don't get these opportunities very often. So please, I, I just am inviting you. You don't want to miss this. Be part of this special service. It's going to start right at 930 in this room. It's going to be a glorious time of celebrating God's design for spiritual shepherding in the church and affirming Chris and his family as they step into this new role among us. So please plan to be part of that here at 9.30 this morning. Let's pray our benediction now out loud together as we go out into our week. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all those whose minds have been renewed by God's spirit would say.
Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.